up all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there thank you for joining me for episode 170 of misfits and rejects in today's episode i sat down with tom williams from desert island survival tom like many of us had a nine to five he found himself super unhappy and daydreaming about desert islands about survival skills about the things that we seem to have lost over the years of technology coming into our lives and just creature comforts convenience things that we all love but have taken us away from that hunter-gatherer sort of mentality that's still in us, that a lot of us thirst for, that pushes us to start things like Desert Island Survival. So that's what Tom did. He quit the 9 to 5, started Desert Island Survival after having gone on an experience where he felt he could really deliver something different. He said he went and he had tried it out and felt that the company he went with that dropped him off on a desert island just wasn't providing the type of service that he felt he could give his customers if he decided to try and build a company around his idea. And that's what he did. He designed a very curated, very fun, very safe experience that allows people to kind of get back to that root of hunter-gatherer, survival, and you get to then contrast your life situation after 10 days of surviving on a desert island with your current life situation and make a big decision. You know, Do you want to continue down the path of going to a job that you hate? Or did this experience that Tom just provided give you some perspective and maybe give you the courage to go out and try something new? It's a really cool story and I could relate to the experiences that he provides people and then the awakenings that he watches them go through after the 10 days is up. So you hear throughout the episode how the 10 days goes. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Um, it's a great episode. And I was captivated the whole time because, I mean, he does provide a really cool experience that isn't so extreme and militant that you just get dropped off and, you know, here figured out like every aspect of your experiences curated, calculated and made to be fun, but also push you, push you a little farther than you might be comfortable into realms that you get to have a lot of self-discovery. And again, his story is so cool because it's so out of the ordinary. I mean, who decides to quit their nine to five and then start Desert Island Survival, where all of a sudden now you're running tour groups out to desert islands and teaching them survival skills. And I mean, he supports his whole family on this. He lives in Thailand at this point, from the UK originally, as you'll hear, and he's able to support his family. Like, that's really cool. So if you're interested in this type of experience, definitely check him out. His link is in the show notes, Desert Island Survival. I mean, as you'll hear, it sounds like such a cool, incredible experience, and he's got a lot of return guests, so... Thank you for joining me today. If you are a first-time listener, please pull up that phone at the subscribe button. That really helps me out within the iTunes Google algorithm of getting misfits and rejects found, heard when people are searching for these types of adventure stories. Uh, if you are so inclined at the end to rate it, I'd love a five-star rating. Commenting on it is also super cool. I love hearing the feedback from fans of misfits and rejects. And I just want you to know I really appreciate you coming, supporting this podcast, and participating week in and week out, listening to these guys and girls' stories around the world who are designing their life in exactly the way they want. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Tom Williams from Desert Island Survival. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit. In America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. 
Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Tom Williams from Desert Island Survival. That's right. How are you, brother? I'm feeling very good. Yeah, it's nice to see you, man. You too. We met at DC, and uh, the second we sat down next to each other, you know, the common conversation, hi, what do you do? And you drop people off on Desert Islands. And I was like, you have to come on the show. I think it was 30 seconds after meeting you. Yeah, like literally, that's how the conversation went. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've seen you since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's nice to have you, man. Thank you for coming. Pleasure. Um, you know, we talked pre-show that you're now in Thailand searching for more islands. And right. we'll get into like how this this whole retreat business, I guess you'd call it, started in a minute. But like, how are you actually searching for islands in Thailand? What is and you're in Chiang Mai now, which is landlocked city, Correct. quite far yeah. from any <laughs> islands. So like what are you doing to proactively yeah. look for islands? It seems like an illogical cho- choice. Um, but we're we're in Chiang Mai because it's I mean it's a beautiful, fantastic place to live. It is about as far away from the sea as you can get in Southeast Asia, but we uh, we absolutely love it here. And the place where the islands are is Indonesia and the Philippines, and it's kind of equidistant between the two, and it's a great jumping-off point for us to go and explore. Why Indo and the Philippines? Just because there's so many? And- yeah, exactly. It's just okay. quantity. And um, to find islands, there's it, it may sound simple, like you've got 18,000 islands in Indonesia, um, only 5% are habited, but... Uh, as soon as you start looking at the parameters that we, 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 we're very picky about the islands we use. And as soon as you start going through those parameters, the, the funnel gets very small. Right. What are the parameters? Right. So, um, I guess I call it like the Goldilocks zone. It has to be somewhere that is close enough to tourism that we can get there without it being too much of a struggle for our customers. Uh, close enough to hotels and nice hotels that we can start and finish as well as a hospital clinic in case of an evacuation emergency but not too close that you feel that you're in an area of mass tourism, there's boat traffic, there's people visiting the island, we can't have that. So that's the first kind of like big drawdown of of islands. And then we have to consider safety. Like we can't, I was looking at some beautiful islands in Indonesia and then found out that there's pit vipers and cobras, which is just not going to cut it. Um, And then other variables as well, like enough resources um, for us to, to be able to sustainably use these islands um, not bad insect populations, no uh, dangers from humans, like southern Philippines is, is a no-go right now. Uh, there is still piracy in this part of the world, which all these things have to be considered. That's really interesting, especially when you talk about the um, nature that lives on islands. Because, I mean, you have been running tours in Panama, off the coast of Panama, right? Correct, yeah. I mean, I would imagine there are snakes there. There are, but there's non-venomous snakes. And okay. I think one of the things that helps us as well is is walking in the footprints of where TV shows have previously gone. They've done a lot of due diligence for us. That helps. Oh, uh, so like you, you like study up on Survivor and exactly. those types of shows and like where they took people. I don't want to give away all my secrets, but yeah, in the past I've watched like Bear Grylls, The Island, gone through the credits, found the people and the production guys and, and spoken with them. And, and we now use the same island in, the, in, in Panama where they filmed Bear Grylls, The Island and Survivor and other such. That's really cool. So yeah, then going back to the, the original, like how did you get into this? Like what is your enthusiasm with dropping people off on desert islands and teaching us survivor? You like ex special forces. What's your background? <laughs> I guess there's two kind of separate answers, but, um, the, the catalyst for doing this initially was in, well, actually I'm going to go back further and maybe, maybe we'll edit, but cause I noticed on your, uh, the brief for kind of for your podcast, it's about feeling uneasy with traditional living in a way. And I, uh, I previously worked like in, I, I used to work as a snowboard instructor, a scuba diver, and I was doing all sorts of cool jobs that I just, you know, felt right and I was happy. And then 
I think there's an expectation from my parents to to get the proper job, to work in the office, to earn the good money. And so I dropped that. I got a good job working outside of London, great money, selling software for a US software company. And whilst I was there, I just got increasingly depressed. It just felt like I felt like a caged animal. Uh, and I, I think the, the real realization of how severe it was was when I was driving back, driving to work. I was like, I could just crash into the central reservation and get two weeks in hospital. That and when that becomes like a, a potential suicidal move, you're like, there is something really quite wrong here. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and so whilst I was doing that job, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a software salesman. I didn't want to be that guy. So I signed up to Walks of the North Pole. And I spent the next two years training and fundraising to race to the North Pole. Uh, and in 2010, um, did the race. We won the race, missed the world record by two hours and 20 minutes. And once I'd done that adventure, I think once you jumped so far out of your comfort zone, and it wasn't just that. We did white-collar boxing tournaments, all sorts of shit. Uh, but once I'd done that and kind of goes so broadly out of my comfort zone and then came back in, I couldn't really live a normal life and do a normal thing after that. But I did. I moved to Chile with my wife now, and I found the first job I could there that would pay good money and worked as a financial advisor. I put on the uncomfortable hat again and continued to do that for another eight years. Um, and then two years before I left that job, I, I set up Desert Island Survival. And thank goodness it seems to be working out and I don't have to go back to a cubicle. How long has this been going on with the Desert Island Survival? We're three years in now. Three years in and sustaining you, your wife, and your, your son, you said? Correct. Yeah, he's um, free. And you've been living in Chile and now you're in Thailand and that's awesome, dude. Congratulations. I'm, I'm still pinching myself, to be honest. It's man. incredible. What that your story just brought out in me is like my current situation where right. like we make these decisions to go after that lifestyle design that we want, we've always dreamed of, and, and we maybe cut all ties to the past, like you said, I'm not doing the finance thing in England anymore. I'm going to go out and do my thing. But then you go to Chile making that first move and you're like, what am I do for money? And you get back into it. Yeah. We're and like, the money. Yeah. And I'm kind of like in this situation where like, this isn't really working anymore. You know, like I'm going to have to probably go back and get a job for a year or two. Yeah. yeah. Unless some miracle happens and just reboot. So I think for all the listeners out there, like we advocate to like really go out and try to design the life that you always wanted, but you do have to probably have a really good plan and a little bit of money saved up yep. or have a side hustle. That is your dream life that once that becomes viable, then you can transition to that, you know, exactly like cutting the cord like you did is super brave and awesome, but it's not for everybody. You know, I, I was lucky. So the job I was doing was hundred percent commission. And so I was able to have like a sliding scale between time and money. Yeah. So I would work nine months on the finance stuff and three months on building my business. Kind of obviously not exactly cut like that, but I, it gave me that safety net to build the business while still having an income. And it's a rare situation that I was able to take advantage of. Not many people get that option. Totally. Yeah. And I consider myself lucky. I can go back to the States whenever I want. I work in a warehouse. I can literally land, show up at the warehouse and they'll give me hours. And it's Fantastic. like a really yeah. flexible time thing for me to do. Makes good money. Um, Going back to your decision to move to Chile, like why Chile? Uh, it was actually my wife's job. Like we, we met, we met in India. She happens to live like right next to me in London. Um, and I said, I want to, I don't want to live in the UK anymore. And she was like, me too. She was working for a alcohol company, Diageo, who, um, you know, the guys who's, um, Johnny Walker, Smirnoff, Guinness. Uh, and yeah, she got it. She's a really smart, talented woman. She got the job uh, as a marketing manager for Chile. And so off I went. 
Was she fluent in Spanish already? No, she no Spanish, and uh, and she yeah she jumped right in the deep end. Um, because part of the job requirements, I'm assuming, was to learn Spanish. After three months, she had to make the switch. So for three months, it was intensive learning. She slept like a baby; like she was so tired. <laughs> and then after that, three months of intense learning, she, that was it. The whole job had to be in Spanish. That's incredible. Yeah. I lived in Nicaragua over 10 years and I can't speak Spanish that well. Me too, man. 10 years in Chile, I'm terrible. <laughs> Tenses, I can't do them. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you think your block is with the languages? Like, uh, I mean, partially, it's a story I tell myself. Like, it's, I'm just not good at them. Yeah. Uh, I, feel, I feel that I'm that, that kind of learning area is something I need to put five times the amount of effort to an average person and, and I feel like it's not a good return on investment. I just, the English is hard enough. I'm dyslexic. Like. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I feel the exact same way. Mm. Um, it takes me so much longer to really... At one point I was tracking it, I would learn one new word a month because I'd have to hear it a hundred times, I'd yeah. have to say it a hundred times, and I'd have to use it in a visual context that made sense to me at least a hundred times before it would stick. Yeah. And that is just so frustrating. Yeah. You know, like at least for, you're moving forward with one a month. <laughs> you are, but it's still you like you Snail's feel like face. an idiot. You know, yeah. I did. I just felt like, oh, I'm just not smart enough. And yeah. Now meeting people who have really grasped the language, like, dude, we all go through it. Sure, some people don't really have the the quick quickness that some of us do in learning it, but like we all had to put an effort. Yeah. Like really hit the books, yeah. put ourselves out in there in, yeah. in comfortable uncomfortable situations. Like I'm super introverted. So like even English conversations, like I might have one a day. So if you're not conversing wow. average, you know, with a lot of people, yeah. like on an hourly basis daily, like you're not gonna pick up the language. Yeah, that's true. Um, one thing I found with Chile is that it's, uh, I mean, it's very first world. Pre-show, we talked about the unfortunate circumstances that Chile it's going finds through right now. going through right now, which it's with, with its past, you're like, oh, these poor people, not again, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we could talk about that in a little bit, but like, it was very clean. People were very like, they did things according to the law. And what I mean is like when I land in a country that I perceived as like being kind of like Nicaragua, lawless, fun, I want to go have a beer at like nine in the morning at the bus station. And that was impossible. Yeah. Like there's no beer sales, one at the bus station. And then two, they wouldn't even start serving alcohol until like 11 or something like that. And I was like, where am I? This sucks. (laughs) However, it's a beautiful place. Cool people. Great waves. I love Chile. Yeah. What did you love so much about it to keep you there for 10 Uh, years? um, Well, I think if I summed it up in one word and it feels less relevant with what's happening right now, but it was just easy. Like it's, it's a very functional place. Um, if you're earning good money, it goes a long way there. This is one of the problems there is this huge disparity of wealth. Um, but it's just a extremely easy place to live. Like the, the country has money. So let's say the roads are getting jammed. They will, they will proactively start improving the infrastructure before mm-hmm. it gets to be a real problem. And it's just nice to live somewhere that feels like it's always getting better. You could see everyone making a movement towards healthy living. There were gyms springing up everywhere. It was nice just after being in England and certainly now, which has a very kind of negative zeitgeist. Uh, Chile just, yeah, just felt like it was increasingly positive at that and the wilderness. To live somewhere with a low population pro rata to land and extraordinary wilderness was a big deal. Yeah. So you said you were also a snowboarder. Did you get to snowboard in Chile? Yeah. It's about an hour and a half outside of Santiago up to the slopes. It's nice, but you'd only get like two or three good bluebird powder days. 
um, uh, a year or so. And there's no trees up there. So as soon as it, like one day after it falls and dumps, it all just blows away because the trees don't protect the powder. Oh, yeah, interesting. But it's still cool. I'm not a big mountain guy, so I wouldn't have even thought about that being an issue. It's so high. <laughs> there's, no, there's no vegetation. Yeah. Your parents support your lifestyle? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, uh, they're, they're very, very happy. For me. So they come and visit you wherever you're at? Well, my dad has gone full hermit. Like he's, he's retired from, uh, his job and he's now living in France. He's just drinking industrial amounts of red wine and chopping wood and watching the river go by. And he, he came to Chile once, but that's a big deal for him. I might get him out to Thailand. We'll see. It sounds like, I mean, just based on what you just said about your dad, the fact that you raced to the North Pole and you've done a bunch of other things, like, were you kind of groomed to be this adventurous person? No, not at all. I don't really know where it came from. Um, well, if your dad's chopping wood in the wilderness, it sounds yeah. like he kind of desires that. He was a solicitor. Of... Okay. <laughs> he just, um, again, I think he went through that his whole life. He had a countdown for a thousand days until retirement. He just couldn't wait to see the back of it. Again, the cat felt very uncomfortable for him. But it just felt like it was what society expected of him. You know, you've got to earn that money. You've got to get that good job. And he's never been happier now with his simple living. He doesn't need much. He, he lives very humbly. That's impressive to me that somebody, and I see it around me as well back home, that people are willing to stay in that life situation. And they just count down the thousand days. Yeah, which is wishing your life away. Yeah, but it's also like how they're mentally tough enough to do it. Yeah. Like, I'm so weak in that sense. Like... Like I'll start drinking at work dude, or something like that to let the time, tell the time go by. Like it's just that it's painful option. for me. It's like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. Um, which is why I've stayed away for so long and I'm, and trying to make this life for myself. But mm -hmm. I do think it needs to be said for people who are toughing it out and willing to do whatever it takes. And, and if their goal is to like make that money and then just retire with that, like hats off to you, dude. Like it just shows how unnatural it is as a state for us humans that it's almost like a modern form of, of slavery and imprisonment to an extent where we have to we have to drink we have to take um inebriants to to get over that that way of living and it's 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 not right, is it? <laughs> I would agree. And then there's the argument that, well, why can't you just accept your present situation and be conscious and present because life's good no matter where you're at. And I haven't quite gotten there. Tell yet. that to a caged bear in a zoo. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a good analogy. So you talked a little bit about pre-Desert uh, Island survival and then the actual like idea that yeah. came to you. Like, this is what I'm going to put all my time and effort into. Yeah. I mean, I had the idea for about seven or eight years. It's something I'd always wanted to do. It's one of those childhood fantasies that many people share. Um, and I'd looked online. I'd see there's a few companies kind of doing it. There's a couple of companies that would do jungle survival, tundra, desert. Um, and once a year, they'd do desert island survival trips. So I went on one of their trips and I was like, this is cool. And there are, this is, there's elements I like, but, the island um, had a person living on it, and there was infestations of insects, like sandfly bites. I think I had a thousand on each leg, um, and it just did not marry with my kind of image of, of, of desert island experience. So I think that was a big shakeup that made me think I could do this better. Maybe I will do this, and and so then I went on another one. Um, uh, run by so that previously was one run by an ex-military guy. And it made me realize that, I mean, he's super talented and does some great stuff. But for me, it's so important to have emotionally intelligent people run these trips. People that are going to make it fun, that are going to identify different personalities, that aren't going to make this a boot camp, that are going to say, um, 
But for example, once we chop the coconuts open, or we bring out a bottle of rum, and it's time for pina coladas, and we have bonfire beach games, and we—that's real. Like even the survival set setting. Well, I haven't even told you about how the trip works. But yeah, okay. the, the first five days is training, and during that training, it's it's we ease you into island life before the final three days of, of, of challenge. But we'll we'll cover that bit. Okay. In a yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, and so the next one I went on was a guy who he now runs all my courses in Panama. A guy, Tom McElroy, super talented guy. He's lived with different tribes and and all across the world in Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, Mexico. 20 years of bushcraft experience. He's, he lived in the woods when he was 19 for one year. Um, and he, uh, yeah, all about the primitive skills, really easy going attitude. And I kind of skills? Primitive, primitive, oh, primitive survival, skills. Okay, got it. Bushcraft. Got it. Um, and so, yeah. And so at the end of the trip, I was like, I kind of want to set up my own company. Do you want to work on this? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. It was the longest pause in my life because uh, I kind of felt like I was a bit of a mole in his uh, in his backyard. Um, so wait, with the Tom Macro guy, how, how did you meet him again? Like, I went on his trip. His I went trip. on his and then island you, survival trip. Then you approach him about working together yeah. on a, your your project? Correct, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's why it was awkward. <laughs> yeah, and he was into it. He was super cool and about it. Did he scrap his thing just to jump on board no, with you? No, so he's got loads of gigs going on. But in the <clears> winter in the US, it's not such a busy time for him. And that's when he comes down and does the Panama gigs. So he does like flint napping classes, bow making, um, leather hide, kind of curing, uh, as well as still doing a, an island survival trip in the US Virgin Islands. Um, so he's got loads of gigs going on and, and he's just like a, effectively a freelance consultant in the bushcraft world to, to come and run our expeditions too. Really? He's been to Tonga with me, French Polynesia. We've had some great trips. Do you go on every trip? No. I've, I mean, wife and kid means that I'm, I've got a strict five trips a year rule. So okay. That's still 60 days away from my family. Right. Before we get in the actual day to day on the island, let's talk about just logistics from a business perspective. As you're sure. going into other cultures, and I'm assuming either renting a portion of space on the island or getting permits to be on the island for a certain amount of time, yeah. how does that work? It it's different every every island, every country. So um, we we rent from governments in many of our locations. We'll, we'll pay. We'll get a permit to um, to use the island. Um, that's one option. Um, we also rent from local villages. So in Tonga, for example, they'll have a, an island which is their scrub. It's like their, their larder, their back, their backyard where they keep their pigs and they might have a cow there and their taro growing, but they don't really go there. It's just where like a garden of Eden prevails. And so we'll, we'll pay a donation to the, to the village, um, which exceeds their expectation, keeps them happy, makes us happy. Um, in, an exclusive. We're launching in the Philippines. We're about to go live with that next month, and and that's a uh, island which is owned by an Australian uh, entrepreneur, and he's he he likes what we're doing. He's happy to rent it to us. So how'd um, you get in contact with him? I found his island on for sale on PrivateIslands.com. He's got it. Well, I, I won't say anymore because I don't fine. want to betray any confidence. That's fine. Um, it's really interesting how the idea comes to somebody or any idea and then they start working towards, you know, accomplishing it and then the different avenues they take, like, like searching for real estate, you know, exactly. like is one way you find locations and then the logistics of having to navigate through governments and, and making donations instead of actually just paying a rental fee or whatever it right. is and like understanding the cultural norms and differences. I, it sounds like it's very layered yeah. and probably took you a bit of time to, and takes you a bit of time every time you walk in a new culture and, and environment. 
For sure. And it, yeah, it's one of the big challenges of the business is, is acquiring islands that, that work like that. And I think one of the best ways as well is on Google Maps. I spend <laughs> like a Bond villain. I'll be just looking on Google Maps for hours and hours and hours and hours trying to identify islands that look like they're in that right kind of Goldilocks zone I mentioned. Mm-hmm. But you can't see too many boat um, wakes behind because you, you can tell where there's lots of activity. Um, and then getting on the ground, there's no substitute for being there talking to local people, talking to boat drivers, going and checking out all these islands. And that's so do you hire a local translator when you um, I Yeah, so I'll normally find a fixer in that area who's okay. helped with TV and other stuff in the past. Yeah, Or I'll just find a tour guide. Yeah. As a surfer, I can relate to the uh, Google satellite images. That's, we're always on Google satellite scouring cool. the coast looking cool. for waves. And um, it's, I think, how many waves have been found in the, in the recent years around the world. Just surfers, knowing what they're looking for, they have their... They have an understanding of the uh, bottom contour and, and the, sure. the uh, topography. The, yeah, topography. And then they can be like, there's probably waves there. Let's go there. Nice. Yeah. Um, was this pretty capital intensive when you got started? Did you need to have a good chunk of change to start? No, I think we were in the black in the first year. And I think uh, that's that's been one of the surprises as well. Like the, the outlay is not huge for me. I had to buy obviously a lot of kit we, we bought the very best stuff um we wanted to the last camping gear yeah so we have um these hammocks from hennessy which have built-in mosquito nets built-in tarps mm-hmm. they're like 280 bucks each so it's 10 of those i mean that's nearly three grand yeah. so that's that's an outlay and mm-hmm. as well as all of the other equipment that comes with it so yeah we're talking like five six grand in equipment but the first trip i ran just i just put it out there to my friends and friends of friends and said i'm gonna do this let's do a cost price trip i want your feedback let's see if this works and so I did it. They're all like, dude, one of the best experiences of my life. Absolutely loved it. And, and that was it. And so then I booked several more dates and it started to fill up. So with the first experience with family and friends, were you the person teaching them survival or did you have somebody who knew? I was, yeah. <laughs> and it's a very, like, so learning bushcraft is a, it's a rule of 10,000 hours. It's Atkinson's law. You can't fake this stuff. You see the guy in the market chopping coconuts outside here. Mm-hmm. He's done that 50,000 times. And there's a reason he's still got all his fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that I'm, I'm 6,000, 7,000 hours into my, my 10,000 hours. It's not something you can fake. But you're just learning by doing. Like, Absolutely. so when you got to the island, I mean, you probably had read a few books and yeah. understood a few basics, yeah. but you just started being like, this is what I heard. I went, yeah, I, I, so I did a few courses. Okay. I, I, I was under Tom's wing, okay. um, Tom McElroy, and right. learning from him. Um, but I won't lie, the first trip I did, I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, they say fake it till you make it. And yeah. uh, I really, uh, but these guys knew this. And I think having their support um, really helped. Like, that was really the second cool. trip that was almost harder. Okay. Yeah. And then the fourth trip when I uh, macheted through my finger. <laughs> did you get medevaced out? Or did you just sew yourself up? I went over to a clinic, got sewed up, and then I had to like carry on doing, I was doing like a fire demonstration uh-huh. where we do um, the bow drill. Yeah. And I'm bow drilling away. And then I just feel it split and there's just blood dripping off my elbow. And it's like, I'm going to put out my fire. Um, but just like stoically carrying on, like this has to, this has to work. And it was fine. Like the expedition. But you ripped the stitches. Yeah. Yeah. It just ripped open. Oh, Jesus. It was, it was, it was fine. It was just when I had cut it and I was lying in the hammock that first night, it was the first night of the expedition. And I was just like, what do I do? Do I fly Tom down from California? Do I carry on? Do I abandon the expedition? Just on my own. Now we always have an assistant, but this is like right out in the infancy of the mm-hmm. business. 
Um, Can you give stitches now? Do you know how to do that? I don't. I don't. I've got a stitch kit, um, but I would rather just get a professional do that. Mm. We always, we, we always have a clinic within 30 minutes. Okay. We, we're, we're big on, on health and safety. Like I recognize that. Uh, a mistake there could cost everything to the business and yeah. to someone. Obviously. Yeah, infection and stuff like that. Yeah, that we sense. carry antibiotics and, and we have a fairly comprehensive medikit. But Fair enough. But stitches, I'd just rather not dish out. Yeah, no, we I, glue them if if need be. Or yeah, butterfly stitch. Yeah, yeah. I became proficient in Nicaragua at stitches. Dude. Just the doctors would come through and like it came to the point though where it was like people were coming in with horrific from the coral. No, more from like machete accidents, um, boards hitting their face or like body, like the skags from a surfboard cutting their head. Yeah. And it became like to the point where like, I'm just like, I can't do this. Like I can do like stuff that's within my range, but like, I'm not going to try to sew your face up. <laughs> you know, when it's a, a female who wants to look attractive. It's exactly. Like, yeah. That's not my it's specialty. Your face important to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is really cool. So marketing wise, like w- you had the Tesco with your friends and family. And then where were you, who are you reaching out to to come on these survival trips? Uh, I mean, we pay a bit on Google ads and that's how we found. And that's, we were very lucky. We got featured in, um, the Sunday Times, National Geographic. We had a reporter from Playboy come. So we were in Playboy. Um, and so that, that's really helped to get the word out there, but our traffic's still low. Like it's not something that people maybe Google desert island survival, but like most of your trips are full every year. I mean, you're sustaining yeah, yourself. Yeah. We're, 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 we're 90% full for next year. And we're, once we add Philippines, we'll have bandwidth for another 50 more people, so seven more trips. Um, and so we're just going to start ramping up on, on Facebook and Instagram ads. I think it's the kind of thing people don't realize is out there and they don't realize they want until they see it. And maybe when you're on the tube back from the office and you're scrolling social media and you see it, you go, ah, that's what I should be doing. Yeah, 100%. What has been the demographic of people that mostly come? I mean, the classic avatar is is a London city worker, a bloke who's 35, who's got a good job, who just feels like, you know, the, the cap's not fitting. They feel that they just need more adventure. We forget that we're primal animals. It's an unnatural state. And um, and so, yeah, that would be the classic person. But it's it's a shame to pigeonhole. Like we, We've had um, Chileans, Koreans... Uh, we've had guys who are 65 and never been camping, 21 year old weather girls, students, um, a very broad range. Okay. That makes sense. And then now let's take, how many people do you have max on each trip? So it's eight people. Eight people total. Yeah. Will you run it if there's less or it has to be eight? We, we start at four. The exhibition will go live at four. Okay. If we, if we haven't, if we've got less three months before, then it's possible we've canceled that. That's not a problem now. Okay. In the early days, that, that was a potential issue, but we never had to cancel just. That's fine. That's exactly my model. I'll run it at four. My max is eight. That's right. how I do. I like the interaction, the small groups. This is it. I think eight, you've got the, the uh, above eight, you start to get the danger of two tribes forming, two different conversations around the fire. And you've got to keep everyone. Uh, hundred percent. Yeah. So let's go. Let's talk me through a day. Yeah. I can't believe we haven't talked about what it is yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's go through the, every step of the way they land sure, yeah. and boom, what happens? So it's a 10 day experience. They land and the first and the last day are at a really nice hotel, like four star or up. We want it to feel like a 10 star hotel when you get back off the Island. So we go for pretty good ones. Um, the very first day is just, you know, getting to know and meet each other. We have a lunch. Um, people just snorkel, kick back, enjoy the hotel. Uh, and then that evening, we have a full expedition briefing, a safety briefing. We talk about the dangers on the island, with do's and don'ts, hygiene, etc. And we try to have a fairly early night that night, not get too carried away. 
Then the next morning,、uh, we leave at 10 a.m. The speedboat comes to the beach of the resort. We like we don't like to have to go to a marina. We like to keep it kind of right there.、Um, and we load all the kit up and we go to the desert island. Normally within half an hour or so.、Um, and then we turn up and we talk about well, what would you do when you first arrive on a desert island? Rather than just kind of running around and getting on with stuff, you need to keep still and just assess your re- resources. Like, why is this going to be the best place for us to make home?、Uh, is there the right amount of trees? Is there water? Is there shelter? Is there food? And so, we've obviously we're not going to drop off 400 liters of water and then have to move halfway around the island. So we kind of know where it is, but then we go exploring and we take in the surroundings. Uh, the first day is shelter. We build a big communal shelter together where we're all going to cook and eat and hang out,、um, and everyone puts up their hammocks. And it already feels like home pretty quickly after three hours previously, just being a kind of totally barren beach with a few coconuts moving up and down the surf.、Um, and so the first five days on the island is training. That's where we're going to teach you all the survival skills that you're going to then need for the final three days, which is the survival phase. Um, so in the first five days, it's survival light. We're cooking for you. You're sleeping in these hammocks.、Um, we're playing games. It's fun.、Um, a lot of alcohol involved. Yeah, it's about. I don't want to get drunk. Drunk. Like, okay. There's, there's a certain danger in this environment of getting drunk, but it's really nice to have a bottle of rum passed around the fire in the evening. Like、right. it's just it gets the conversation flowing. It's great. Um, but it's not about getting drunk. I hear you. <laughs>、um, and so, yeah, the first day shelter. Then we'll do a day of fire. Like we'll go and find the right woods to make bow drills,、um, which is that that、uh, archetypal um, uh, fire technique. And the other friction fires we do with a hand drill.、Um, we do a bamboo fire saw. We use a flint as well. We just show people how to do that first of all. It's a bamboo fire saw. So it's、uh, basically you take a piece of bamboo about. Uh, two inches thick,、uh-huh. and you split it in half with your machete, and then it's kind of hard to explain on a podcast. Okay, but,、um, there's basi- probably examples on YouTube I can put in the show. Yeah,、notes. totally. Okay, but you know that you、uh, you can actually cut meat with bamboo. It's razor sharp, and so that edge you、um, you'll put that in the sand between your legs, and you will run the other half up and down that edge. Okay, and as it's such a fine point, you get really really hot friction straight away, and、well, and you have some kindling, something that you prepared to like exactly, drop, yeah. yeah. And it's great because bamboo has that as well. You scrape your machete on the、okay. edge, and you get these nice feather curls. Okay, and、cool. so you have that inside,、um, inside the bamboo. I'll put it in the show notes for the audience. Do it, understand? Yeah, do it. I need to make those videos myself. Like I haven't done any of this stuff. I need、okay. to get like a YouTube channel going. Yeah.、Um, so yeah, it's a really cool fire technique. So go on. So five days is training. Yep. And then are are you limiting what people can bring to the island? Kind of like the survivor stuff. Or like- so we're we're cool. Like obviously you should have sun cream and and bug spray. Like we don't want you to come back burnt and and eaten.、Um, and it's fine to have your Kindle and read in the hammock when you go to bed, but just not kind of like you know too socially. We do take people's SIM cards on Panama. There is a little bit of cell reception on one on one mountain. We want you to feel disconnected. We want this to feel real. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so five days of training, and then we take away basically everything. You just have a machete, a hand knife, a medikit, a sat phone, a handful of fish hooks, and some line, and that's it. So you've got to get fire by friction. You can't take the flint. You've got to、uh, find food. You've got to build that shelter. You've got to get water. And the instructor, you are still there for those three days. Yeah,、are、we you... kind of set ourselves back in the forest. We're there. We've got a, oh, you've got a, a set of sat phone. You've got a、mm-hmm. two-way radio as well. Um, so we're there in case of emergency, but you 
really won't see us. Like, really? You feel like you're on so your you own. So you kind of just break off from the group and you go do your own thing? Yeah, if we see them, we blank them. <laughs> <laughs> this is so interesting. So they do have a Kindle for the first five days. Is there a power source they can plug into? Yeah, we have a big solar, solar battery. Okay, and you yeah. bring in all your water. Yeah. So, like, are they not having to filter water or boil it, or do they do it the last three days? So we teach them all those techniques. Like, okay. we'll show them how to make solar stills. We'll show them how to turn uh, salt water into fresh water. Teach them how to get into coconuts, different vines that you can drink from, um, other wild edibles that are going to give you water. But if you were to just live off water, it, it takes up all your time, and you shouldn't eat food. Like, it's the hardest thing of island living is water. In the Philippines, we do have a, a creek. So that makes okay. life easier. But we bring in the water just so we don't have to spend all of our time acquiring water. Yeah, and we will get, tend to give them emergency supply for the free days. Right. And they get a buffet of experiences that they can like, rather than searching for water, they, they leave with more of an experience. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, that's all they would do. And then like the hygiene thing you mentioned, are we talking about like they have to shit in a bag kind of thing? Like, and you can't leave any trace of your existence on the island once you leave yeah we dig we dig a it's amazing how quickly that goes in the jungle so there's Ooh. lots of land crabs who are going to rip it apart oh, okay. so we dig a long drop hole and um and every time you go you put some sand over it okay or my personal favorite is the aqua poo okay where you, you swim about 400 <laughs> meters away from the rest of the guys and and start a backwards swim okay okay <laughs> it floats and the fish it oh. floats in the salt water so you, you've got to get some pace up there. <laughs> get, get moving interesting and then what other kind of stuff do you teach them about hygiene like just keep yourself what dry clean like yeah yeah, I mean, um, we yeah exactly. It, don't let moisture on your people get nappy rash if they okay. if they don't keep themselves dry. Imagine similar kind of stuff for you guys. Oh, hundred percent. But I feel like yeah, I guess with the lack of fresh water in your bathing yourself, it gets worse and worse. Yeah, like I've definitely gone days, you know, in, in situations where I just salt water on my body and yeah. starts to like yeah. cut into you because it's salt dries and yeah. you walk and you just get these really bad yeah. rashes. I thought it would be worse because we're, we're militant that that water we have is literally obviously just for drinking and for mm-hmm. cooking um, and brushing your teeth and drink. And so it's surprising though that people don't get salt sores. It doesn't seem to be an issue. We're in and out of the water 10, 15 times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as bad as it should be, but. And the ones that you do go on, cause you go on five a year, you said, are you just as enthusiastic as you once were? I, I love it so much. Really? It's my, it's my happiest place. Really? I, I can't, I don't think I'm, yeah, there's anything better. For and me. your wife, what does she think about it? Like, has she been? I'm assuming she has. Yeah, she came to French Polynesia. Does she want to go back? Yeah, she again? wants to do the Panama trip because okay. that's what I always talk about fondest. Okay. Um, I'm hoping the Philippines one is going to be even better. And so she'll come on that. Nice. But she's your business partner. So, well, she's my, no, she, she's got her own gigs going on. Okay. She's, um, but she does help out with digital, um, with digital side of things. Yeah. She's been doing digital marketing and helping more and more. Okay. So going back to the retreat. So the last three days are them on their own, fully survival mode. And then on day, what, nine, the boat pulls up yeah. in the morning at 9 a.m. Exactly. And everyone cheers, it's, you hug it out, and then you get back on the boat and it's like party time. Yeah, it's laden with cold beer, with Coca-Colas and fruit. And um, yeah, you go back for the best shower of your life. Uh, the aircon hits you as you walk into your room and you see these crisp white sheets after sleeping on palm fronds for three days, call your friends and family. And now yeah, we go out for a big knees up, uh, eat your weight in pizza. And yeah, it's a cracking night. That's awesome. It's, it's strange because that, that morning it's a holiday. You can't wait to end. And then once you then you've got back and you've, you've, you've got all your creature comforts, you're like, Oh, take me back to the island. There's a certain simplicity to it that with time you become very accustomed to. You've been to India. I was in India. I lived on a beach in India with my friend 
like, and his girlfriend under a rock with little palm fronds what? for three weeks. Really? There's a freshwater spring we got our water from. We walked, you know, a few kilometers in to get food occasionally yeah. and like supplies. But there was a point where it's like we were in such sync with the, the sun coming up Absolutely. and the sun going down. Absolutely. And I never got bored. Yeah. I didn't do yeah. anything yeah. all day yeah. except for float in the freshwater, maybe take a dip, watch the birds. Yeah. And never got bored. That's it amazing. was incredible. Yeah. And I think so fondly of that moment. I, I can imagine. It's it's very similar. And I think I, I set this company up thinking that it's all about the castaway experience. It's all about imparting and learning these survival skills. But it's now transpired that what people get most of all is that detachment from the modern world and that immersion in nature. And it's it does something very profound to us. Like we we're never happier, I think, than when we're living simplistically in nature without without the electricity. It's it's how oh. we're pre-programmed to be. Like we were only fifteen generations ago since we were living tribally, basically. Yeah. And um, it, that's how we're pre-programmed, and that 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 hat fit, fits very well. It does, yeah. Just yeah, falling asleep the second the sun goes down. Yeah. You're just in such harmony with yeah. Mother Nature. It's really cool that you're recreating that experience for people. Do you have return guests? I never expected that to be a thing at all. I thought it would be like a once-in-a-lifetime thing for people. We've got about 15%, 20% return. Incredible. Because it's it has such a, a spike, like a, such an impact on people that they they, they need that feeling again. Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm sure that they could recreate it with, with different expeditions and stuff. But as we release new islands, they're like, dude, I want to be the first on that island. I want to, I want to see this new place. Well, it sounds like you give the perfect balance. Like you're not the militant ex-military guy like, suck it up. You know, <laughs> It's uh, gradually led into a fun yeah. sort of experience with, you know, the passing the ball of run around at night. And then, okay, you're on your own for three days, which is going to be hard yeah. and uncomfortable. But it's not so long that you're like, this sucks. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then you get to finish it off with an yeah. amazing experience so that's great so like price point wise like it sounds like if the audience wanted to come there's varying price points for various locations around the world yeah um panama is our, our cheapest location which is two thousand four hundred and fifty dollars for the 10 days and that's not including airfare that's not including airfare or travel insurance so the okay. two things that you need to get okay. uh, otherwise you can't really spend a dime after that so i guess there's that that, that aspect to it um, Philippines, I think it's going to come in at two, two, nine hundred and Tonga is three thousand two hundred. Um, Tonga includes swimming with humpback whales, um, which is like, it makes it a double bucket list experience. Like so, pre or post? Uh, pre. So the day that we, the very first day that instead of going to the island, we get into the boat and we go and swim face to face with these humpbacks and we spend the whole day from like 8 a.m. till 3 p.m. doing that. And instead of dropping us back on the hotel, we get dropped on the island. And everyone's just buzzing after this magical experience. And we have a hog roast going on the island. Uh, we don't have time to build a shelter. It just hammocks <laughs> up, sun down, rum out. Wow. It's, it's a strong start. Oh, bet. That sounds cool. <laughs> What's it like swimming with humpbacks? Well, I've not done it yet. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, um, it's, yeah, I guess what I just told you is my imagination <laughs> of what it's going to be like. Oh, okay. But we've, we've got those trips in July and August. I've only been in January when the humpbacks weren't there. Okay. The island is stunning. But there were no humpbacks when I did it. Okay. <laughs> That's cool. No, I mean, I, we have humpbacks crossing um, Nicaragua. So I see them quite often. I've never jumped in the water and tried to hang out. Yeah. So Van Vanuatu and Tonga are the two places where you can do this. It's where the mothers come to nurse their calves. So okay. they're stationary. There's no angry males. It's a very safe way to do it. And okay. the water is crystal clear. So it's like the, the place to do it. Wow. That's great. So Indo and Philippines are where you're scouting now. Um, are you excited for one over another or is it equal? 
at the moment, I mean, this island, which we've just got in the Philippines, feels like it ticks every single box. I'm okay. so excited for it. It's got okay. cashew crows. It's got monitor lizards. It's got perfect protected coral reefs. Um, it's stunning. I'm, I'm going there in January to, to do the final recce. Uh, but I think it should do everything. And it's well connected as well. You can mm. get to Manila uh, direct from much of the States, much of Europe. Uh, and then it's only an hour and a half seaplane uh, to the hotel from there. Mm-hmm. When you do land on the desert island, you're always able to pull up on the beach, right? You don't have to have to like navigate over coral it's reefs. A great question. In. So yeah, in, in in French Polynesia, it's just we, we if we use the small little tin boats, we're fine. But the main big boat that we bring all the kit on, um, we can't get in close. So yeah, you you swim to the island the first time, and we porter back and forth the the kits on these little canoes. Really? Yeah. Like hand, uh, just, like uh, canoes? We, we swim them in. We load oh, them up and swim them in. Like little flat canoes that you yeah. use. And then you just, do you leave the canoes with you or do you take them back out to uh, the boat? And t- they, take them back out into the boat. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah, it's funny you ask that. Well, as a surfer and That's server's it. been doing this for a long time in Indo, like they'll have the locals drop them off on a deserted island that they have seen waves from. Mm-hmm. And they take all like chickens, goats out there and they just live for months. Wow. And, um, and yeah, getting off across the reef for them, like there is footage of these guys and this, like the goats are in the water, like <laughs> just got like just smashed, you know? It sounds all poor goats, but apart from that, it sounds awesome. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it seems you really cool. have to send cool. me that. I really want to. I will. The movie's called Second Thoughts. I'll put it in the, yeah, um, the I'll show. Watch that. That yeah. sounds great. Yeah. The guy was adventurous. Him and his friends, they, they lived it. And a lot of surfers been doing it for years, so it's not uncommon, but. Yeah. Man, it's really cool to talk to you and hear about, you know, Desert Island Survival. I think a lot of guests will get a lot out of it if they come join you. And is there something that you really want the audience to know and have an understanding about you, your service, and what it's all about? Uh, I think as we've evolved, I've, I've realized that the three values, the three kind of tenets of what, what set us apart and make our trip special, and I've kind of alluded to them, are... The islands have to be perfect. We are so picky about finding you the best tropical, beautiful islands that, that tick every box. Secondly is the people. Like the instructor and the assistant instructor have to be the coolest, soundest dudes of deep emotional intelligence and super talented at bushcraft skills. And I think we, we will go to the ends of the earth to make sure that both of those elements are the, the, the finest, you know, and I think that's what makes our trips really, really unique and cool. Um, and, and safety as well. Like we, it's fun. It's, you know, we've got the rum, it's all jokes and stuff, but we, we, and we're not militant, but we don't take any chance on your safety. Like there is always a chance that you're going to make a mistake with a machete, but we do as much as we can to show you how to safely use these things. Absolutely. If you could speak to one audience member who's stuck in the rat race in London, in Australia, Sydney, LA, who wants to get out and maybe just start something similar to you, go travel for the first time. Absolutely. Just get out of the rat race. Definitely. What would you tell them? Uh, come to a desert island. <laughs> but it's funny. I mean, obviously, I was my answer to everything. But yeah. we, we've had a lot of people who have... Um, the other thing with doing this is it steps you off the rat race, off the hamster wheel. And it's the first time for so many people that they've actually slowed down in life and taken a step out of their, their life. And they can almost look back on themselves like an out-of-body experience. And I've had people realize like the changes they want to make from that detachment from their life. So we've had people who've given up smoking and started doing ultra marathon running. I've had people leave their job. I've had people leave their partner. I've had people come out to get over divorce. Like it seems to be, it's not meant to be a therapy session, but it helps people with, um, with, with big changes and it helps people, uh, helps as a catalyst for people with big, 
So getting into nature, if they can't afford your service, like go camping camping for 10 days. Go trekking. Find, there's so many, like wiki, wiki treks. There's so many cool pre, pre done treks out there. You can just get the GPS points, stick them into your phone, follow these routes. Uh, you can do some amazing, make sure you've got the right kit. Make sure you tell people where you're going. Um, you can buy a little, um, satellite device now for like 50 bucks. Just text ones or, or an SOS button. Get out there and do, do an adventure. You can also do like micro adventures. There's a guy, Alistair Humphreys, who has a book called Micro Adventures, it's UK based, but the same idea works for other places. That he he looks like a hundred adventures that you could do from London, be it a twenty-four hour adventure or a one-week adventure. Mm-hmm. Twenty-four hour is just going to the top of like Hampstead Heath, it's a big hill, camping or just sleeping in a sleeping bag and watching the sunrise, going to work the next morning. Then there's other ones like getting inner tubes and um, going down the Seven Estuary, which is like a big kind of um, estuary river in the UK, and um, just having dry bags with all your kit, just paddling in these inner tubes, camping, doing that for three days. Like, it doesn't cost much money to do this stuff, and it will make you feel so alive, and you'll forget all your problems, and you'll be very happy for that for that little expedition. I love it, dude. Folks, check them out. Desert Island Survival. Tom Williams, thank you for coming on the show. Really lovely ranting at you about it. (laughs) Awesome, Tom. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. I could relate in so many ways to the experience that you're providing, much like the experience I was providing to my guest in Nicaragua. Yours is a little bit ruler than mine. However, there's a lot of crossover that uh, I could really relate to. And I think anybody who's interested in going to one of your retreats, tours, I don't know how you'd really classify Desert Island Survival, but sounds like an amazing experience and something in which a lot of people could benefit from and really get back to that hunter-gatherer mentality that we all used to have. Again, if you're a first-time listener, please hit that subscribe button. If you like this episode and want to share it with a friend, I'd be honored, as would Tom. And I want you to know I think you all are so very beautiful. I hope these episodes are inspiring you as much as they're inspiring me. The last three for me have just really come at a time in my life, in my business development that have fueled that fire a little bit more. You know, hearing Tom Sorry, his success has brought me a lot of encouragement in my own endeavors. And much like Edamars in last week's episode, uh, I couldn't be happier to have these people in my life uh, giving me this inspiration to continue on moving forward, design that life that I've always wanted. So thank you again. I think you all are so very beautiful and I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out and spread your wings and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it the perfect one for you and I'll see you next time